very much for that. Um, can I just echo the invitation for the Open Doors evening next week? Um, all of us come from backgrounds where we've got different challenges, different battles in our own personal lives and perhaps back home with families in our home country. But it is always good, isn't it, to take our eyes off our own difficulties and to focus for a moment on those whose plight is uh, far more severe than our own. And Tace Visser is a lovely man and uh, some of the, the, the way he brings across the ministry of open doors in these persecuted countries I have always found to be um, encouraging, um, just wonderful to hear Christians pressing on in situations that are much more difficult than my own. So I do hope you'll join us next Sunday night. Good. Well, won't you bow with me and let's pray and ask for God's help as we come to this passage this morning. Heavenly Father, your word is living light upon our darkened eyes. It guards us through temptations and it makes the simple wise. Heavenly Father, we find much around us that is perplexing and worrying and troublesome and we don't understand it. We are simple. And uh, Lord, even in our own hearts, there is much that is bewildering and troubling. And so, Lord, we come as your dearly loved children this morning and ask that you would shine the living light of your word into our minds and our hearts this morning. And we ask it for Christ's sake. Amen. Well, this week uh, I read about a series of advertisements that appeared in a daily newspaper. Uh, The advert on Monday read as follows. The Reverend A.J. Jones has a colour TV set for sale. Telephone 626-1313 after 7pm and ask for Mrs. Donnelly, who lives with him, cheap. On Tuesday, the newspaper printed the following apology. Uh, We regret any embarrassment caused to Reverend Jones by a typographical error in yesterday's newspaper. The advert should have read, uh, The Reverend Jones has a colour TV set for sale cheap. Telephone 626-1313 and ask for Mrs Donnelly, who lives with him after 7pm. On Wednesday, the newspaper printed yet another correction. Uh, The Reverend Jones informs us that he has received several annoying telephone calls uh, because of an incorrect advert in yesterday's paper. It should have read, uh, The Reverend Jones has a colour TV set for sale cheap. Telephone 626-1313 after 7pm and ask for Mrs Donnelly, who loves with him. Uh, On Thursday... Um, The final advert read as follows. Please take notice that I, the Reverend Jones, have no colour TV set for sale. I have smashed it. Uh, Don't call 626-1313 anymore. Uh, I have not been carrying on with Mrs Donnelly. She was, until yesterday, my housekeeper. Now, I don't know whether that really happened or not. But I start with it because this morning we're thinking about misunderstandings and how to deal with them. 
And uh, the reason we're doing this is because if we don't deal with misunderstandings properly, then even a simple misunderstanding can threaten the unity of the church. Now, I guess in our very individualistic culture, many Christians think that church unity isn't really a very big deal. Uh, In fact, the idea of being united to other Christians in the fellowship of a local church, well, it makes people feel rather claustrophobic. Uh, It interferes with their freedom to worship where they want, whenever they feel like it. But, of course, Jesus didn't think like that, did he? Uh, He thought unity was, was really important. And so the night before he died, Jesus prayed for all believers, and he said may they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. In other words, according to the Lord Jesus, our unity at church is a visual aid for the world. It shows them what the gospel looks like. So our unity really matters, which means that we need to pay very careful attention to the message of our passage this morning. Now the place to start, I think, is by trying to get our bearings in the book of Joshua as a whole. The book of Joshua, I'm sure you've realised by now, is all about the land. So in chapters 1 to 4, we saw how God brought Israel into the promised land, across the impossible barrier of the Jordan River. Then in chapters 5 to 12, we were told how God enabled Israel to take the land by defeating all their enemies. Do you remember that phrase? God gave their enemies into their hands. Then last week in chapters 13 to 21, we saw that God allocated the land between every tribe, every clan, every family, every individual, so that each individual was perfectly provided for. And now, in the last three chapters of the book, uh, chapters 22 to 24, the theme is retaining the land. How are Israel going to hold on to everything that God has given them? And so you'll find that each of the last three chapters begins with Joshua summoning a different group of people and giving them instructions for the future. And uh, in chapter 22, there's a very practical account of how a misunderstanding threatened the unity of God's people and how it was dealt with. And I want to suggest to you this morning that this chapter provides a model for how Christians should conduct themselves when there are misunderstandings and disagreements between us. And if we can learn the lessons of this chapter, they're going to be invaluable, I think, both in our own personal relationships and in preserving Christian love and Christian unity in the family of the church. So, three important principles for us to grasp this morning, and you'll find them on the inside of the bulletin you were given when you arrived this morning. So first, from the verses that Alice just read for us, 
we learn that if misunderstandings are going to be dealt with properly, there must be an agreed authority. There must be an agreed authority. That's actually, I think, why there are so many problems in our society today. Uh, Every culture and every subculture puts pressure on people around them to accept their standards and their values. And one of the biggest problems facing South Africa is that there there are actually no universally agreed authorities. So there are laws, but massive lawlessness. And in those areas where legislation is not appropriate, areas of personal priorities, personal behaviour, there is no agreed authority. And so all around us, uh, we see the brokenness and the unhappiness, which is the inevitable result of the thinking that says there is no such thing as absolute truth and no agreement that there is such a thing as an, an absolute authority. But of course, as Christians, we know, don't we, that God is the ultimate authority. Uh, He's the creator and sustainer of all things, and therefore our allegiance is to him as our creator and to the Lord Jesus as our redeemer. And we know, don't we, that the way God communicates his authority to us is through his word. And so as Christians, we accept the authority of God as it is given to us in the Bible. Now, of course, I'm sure all of us here this morning accept that intellectually. But as Christians, we've also got to agree to live by that same authority practically. And that is rather more than simply saying, well, yes, of course, I believe in the authority of the Bible. It's actually a resolve that needs to be renewed constantly. Now, if you look at our passage this morning, you'll find in verse 2 that Joshua speaks of a past that was subject to the will of God. Uh, The two and a half tribes were going back on the other side of the Jordan, which was the place where they were to settle. And Joshua's pretty pleased with them. You can see that in verse 2. You have done all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded, and you have obeyed me in everything I commanded. So you see, their past was characterised by detailed obedience to God's will as revealed through Moses and Joshua. And it was demonstrated practically in verse 3, notice this, by their fulfilment of God's mission. Can we all see verse 3? You have not deserted your brothers, but have carried out the mission the Lord your God gave you. But you see, Joshua knows perfectly well that just because they followed the Lord in the past is no guarantee that they will continue to follow the Lord in the future. 
That kind of resolve has to be renewed constantly. So that's why in verse 5, Joshua reminds them of the priorities they must keep if they're going to remain in covenant fellowship with God. Verse 5, be very careful to keep the commandment and the law that Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you to love the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to obey his commands, to hold fast to him, and to serve him with all your heart and all your soul. You see, if they're going to continue in the experience of fellowship with God, these are the priorities. Keeping the commandment is the foundation. And if we've learned one lesson from Joshua, surely it is this, that obedience is the primary requirement. If we love God, we must keep his commandments. But will you notice with me in verse 5 that the emphasis here is on enthusiasm and wholeheartedness. We were thinking about that last week, weren't we? Well, here it is again in verse 5. Joshua says, Walk in all his ways, hold fast to him, serve him with all your heart and all your soul. Now you see, that's teaching us, I think, that no obedience to God is safe if it is not also enthusiastic. God isn't calling us to a kind of lukewarm, grudging discipleship so that we obey him when we feel like it, but not otherwise. If that's our attitude, then we'll quickly find reasons for disobeying God And I have to tell you that God is not interested in grudging obedience. He calls us to a joyful, complete surrender to him. So Joshua uh, sends the two and a half tribes away with his blessing, but they go with a very strong reminder of the need for total dedication to the discipline of detailed obedience to the Lord. Hold fast to him, serve him with all your heart. So can you see that the unity which Joshua is interested in is unity in the truth. It is based on an agreed authority. You are to do it because God says it. You are to follow him enthusiastically and wholeheartedly because he is God. He's given you the land. He's provided all that you need. So now, go and serve the Lord. Now that truth is the basis for Christian unity. Because if we all agree to live under the same divine authority then however much we might be separated by differences of culture or language 
or education or upbringing, there will be a oneness between us that is unbreakable. Now very interestingly, here in Joshua 22, it was precisely because of that agreed authority that a misunderstanding arose. So you'll notice that as the two and a half tribes went towards the Jordan, before they crossed over at the end of verse 10, they built an imposing altar there by the Jordan. And the result in the next two verses is that the whole of the rest of Israel, the nine and a half tribes, gathered to go to war against them. So there's about to be civil war between the people of God. Now why? Well, ironically, it's because they have an agreed authority. You see, when you have standards and an agreed authority that is absolute, there is always the potential for misunderstandings and conflicts that might not otherwise exist. That's actually part of the privilege and the challenge of believing that there is such a thing as truth with a capital T. From time to time, it produces misunderstandings. Why? Well, because we cannot compromise the truth and the truth cannot be kind of casually put on one side. But the way that misunderstandings are dealt with is actually just as important as the truth itself. And I say that because I guess all of us have met Christians who have a very high view of truth. Um, They've got all their doctrines very neatly sorted out and they would willingly crusade for the truth. But they do it in such an unloving way that you wonder if the truth has ever got out of their heads and into their hearts. Now that is not what it means to be a biblical Christian. The way that we contend for the truth really matters. Equally, I guess all of us have met Christians who have a tremendous warmth, but they seem to have almost no standards at all and would accept almost any belief that you put in front of them out of the goodness and the warmth of their heart. Now that isn't being a biblical Christian either. We are to speak the truth in love. And we've always got to keep those two things together. Truth and love. A clear head and a warm heart. A mind that is fully committed to God's revelation in Scripture and a life that is seeking to live it out in love. But having said that, we mustn't be surprised if that sometimes causes disagreements and misunderstandings. So the first principle is that we must recognise the authority of God revealed in his word. And that has to be the basis on which any misunderstandings and disagreements are resolved. 
Well, now, let's see what that looks like here as we read on from verse 13. Verse 13. So the Israelites sent Phinehas, son of Eleazar the priest, to the land of Gilead, to Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh. With him they sent ten of the chief men, one for each of the tribes of Israel, each the head of a family division among the Israelite clans. When they went to Gilead, they said to them, the whole assembly of the Lord says, how could you break faith with the God of Israel like this? How could you turn away from the Lord and build yourselves an altar in rebellion against him now? Wasn't the sin of Peor enough for us? Up to this very day, we have not cleansed ourselves from that sin, even though a plague fell on the community of the Lord. And now, are you turning away from the Lord? If you rebel against the Lord today, tomorrow he'll be angry with the whole community of Israel. If the land you possess is defiled, come over to the Lord's land, where the Lord's tabernacle stands, and share the land with us. But don't rebel against the Lord or against us by building an altar for yourselves other than the altar of the Lord our God. When Achan, son of Zerah, acted unfaithfully regarding the devoted things, did not wrath come upon the whole community of Israel? He was not the only one who died for his sin. Pause there. Because the second principle that comes from that paragraph is that where there are misunderstandings, there must be a constructive challenge. A constructive challenge. You see, any misunderstanding must not be allowed to continue without being resolved. And here, it's to the great credit of the Israelites that before they went to make war on the other tribes, that they sent a delegation to discover exactly what was going on and to put their grievance openly to their brothers. Now, friends, that is spiritual wisdom. There will always be those people who want to shoot first and ask questions afterwards. But that is not God's way. When people are not willing to talk frankly about misunderstandings with one another, the misunderstandings always multiply. That's true in marriage, it's true in families, it's true in business, and it's true in the church. There's got to be an open, frank discussion about the problem. Now that's what happens here. Uh, Before they went to war, they talked. Before there was conflict, there was consultation. And if we follow that practice, I want to suggest that we will experience God's help in resolving our misunderstandings too. And I especially want us to notice that the way the Israelites did it was as an appeal made in a spirit of very obvious love and concern for their brothers. Notice that in verse 16. How could you break faith with the God of Israel? 
How could you do a thing like this? How can you allow God's judgment to fall on the nation by your rebellion against him? Now you see, they didn't say, you're clearly in the wrong, no other verdict is possible, here's the evidence, one, two, three, now what are you going to do about it? They didn't say that. They appealed. They cared. There was a genuine attempt to change the attitudes of those who they thought were in the wrong. Did you notice that they also even went to the point of offering their brothers a share of their own land on the West Bank, if that would help? So there is a real love and concern here. And I think that's a wonderful model for how to approach a situation like this. But then we need to ask, don't we, well, hang on a moment, what on earth was wrong with this particular altar? That obviously was the key issue. Well, keep a finger in Joshua and turn back with me, if you will, to Leviticus 17 on page 88. Uh, Leviticus chapter 17, page 88. And uh, we're going to pick it up at verse 8. Now, what's going on here is that uh, God is giving instructions to Israel through Moses about how their worship is to be conducted. Leviticus 17, verse 8. Say to them, any Israelite or any alien living among them who offers a burnt offering or sacrifice and does not bring it to the entrance to the tent of meeting to sacrifice it to the Lord, that man must be cut off from his people. Now you see, what God is saying there is that there is only one place of acceptable sacrifice. One altar. And in those days, that was at the entrance to the tent of meeting. That is where the sacrifices were to be offered, nowhere else. And so that's why you see the the other tribes hearing about this new imposing altar by the Jordan River. They say, well, these people, they're rebelling against the clear word of God. And judgment is bound to fall on all of us. By the way, this was really important. Because, you see, God was laying down the unchanging principle that there is only one way to be right with him. Under the old covenant, uh, that was through the altar at the tabernacle and later at the altar outside the temple in Jerusalem. But you see, that arrangement was always pointing forward to the new covenant and to the one full, perfect, sufficient sacrifice of the Lord Jesus for the sins of the whole world. Back then in Joshua, without this principle, Israel would soon be influenced by Canaanite religious worship practices and their relationship with the Lord would have been horribly compromised. Now we know that that would have happened then because it's precisely what's happened in large parts of the Western Church today. Uh, A generation ago, 
church leaders decided that it was no longer politically correct to say that there's only one altar, only one way to be right with God. You can't say that's politically incorrect. And what's been the result? Well, I'll tell you what the result is. The result is that the church is dying in many parts of the West as an institution and it has totally lost its voice in the public square. And all because those church leaders decided that man can approach God in any way he chooses. Well, please come back to Joshua. Because here, uh, the Israelites do the right thing. They go to their brothers to talk about this new altar and they make their appeal from Scripture. But notice that they also appeal to past experience and that's a valid argument as well. For example, in verse 17, they uh, remind their brothers about the sin of Peor which is described in Numbers 25. Uh, If you've read it, you may know that on that occasion the Israelites began to worship the Moabite god Peor and God's judgment fell on the whole nation with the result that uh, 24,000 people died in a plague. So they say in verse 17, haven't you learned a lesson from that? Wasn't that enough for you? Verse 18, if you rebel against the Lord today, tomorrow he will be angry with the whole community of Israel. In other words, look at the past, learn from it. So, they put forward arguments from scripture and arguments from history. And uh, in that way, they outline the offence as they see it against God's character by building this imposing altar. And I think they set out their challenge constructively and logically and sensibly and biblically. And I think that is a model for us. They don't say, well, I'm not going to talk to them about it. Uh, If they're going to do that, we're going to war. They talk to their brothers and say, brothers, this is the way we see it. Now, how do you see it? And that leads us to the third thing we need to learn from this chapter this morning. So let's read on from verse 21. Then Reuben, Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh replied to the heads of the clans of Israel, The mighty one, God the Lord, the mighty one, God the Lord, he knows and let Israel know. If this has been in rebellion or disobedience to the Lord, do not spare us this day. If we have built our own altar to turn away from the Lord and to offer burnt offerings and grain offerings or to sacrifice fellowship uh, fellowship offerings on it, may the Lord himself call us to account. No, we did it for fear that someday your descendants might say to us, what do you have to do with the Lord, the God of Israel? The Lord has made the Jordan a boundary between us and you, you Reubenites and Gadites. You have no share in the Lord, so your descendants might cause ours to stop fearing the Lord. That's why we said, let us get ready and build an altar, but not for burnt offerings or sacrifices. On the contrary, 
It is to be a witness between us and you and the generations that follow that we will worship the Lord at his sanctuary with our burnt offerings, sacrifices and fellowship offerings. Then in the future, your descendants will not be able to say to ours, you have no share in the Lord. And we said, if they ever say this to us, to our descendants, we will answer, look at the replica of the Lord's altar which our fathers built, not for burnt offerings and sacrifices, but as a witness between us and you. Far be it from us to rebel against the Lord and turn away from him today by building an altar for burnt offerings, grain offerings and sacrifices other than the altar of the Lord our God that stands before his tabernacle. So when misunderstandings arise between Christians, the third principle is that there must be room for a detailed defence. A detailed defence. As I said before, misunderstandings only multiply when one side won't listen to the other. And uh, by the way, that is usually the sign either of the weakness of their argument or of their mixed motives. But here, Israel had put their case and now they listen to their brother's defence. And verse 22 tells us that they made their defence in the sight of God. They use his full title twice in order to emphasise the seriousness of what they're saying. The mighty one, God, the Lord, he knows, he knows the heart. So they appeal publicly to God's private knowledge of their motivation. And they say, we agree with you. We agree with what you're saying from scripture. If we are building an altar on which to offer our sacrifices, well that clearly is rebellion. And if that's right, well then we deserve God's wrath. But they say, that wasn't our motive at all. We didn't build the altar for worship and uh, sacrifice. We built it as a testimony. We want future generations to know that our share in Israel is as valid as yours. We don't want them saying, you know, the River Jordan is a boundary between us and you, so you have no share in our inheritance. And so we decided to build this before we left the Promised Land to show that when we left, we were still part of the worshipping people of God. We wanted to leave this visible testimony of our unity with you in the Lord. So can you see that our motive was to promote unity, not to undermine it? So friends, you see, their motives had been completely misunderstood. The nine and a half tribes were quite wrong in their assessment of the situation. What a tragedy it would have been if they had gone to war without talking it through first. But instead, in the greatness and the goodness of God, 
the misunderstanding was actually used to deepen the ties of fellowship. So the issue was resolved peacefully and openly. Both sides listened to the other. There was agreement on the authority of Scripture. There was a determination to sort things out and to abide by God's will. And as a result, what happened? Verse 30. When Phineas, the priest, and the leaders of the community heard what they had to say, they were pleased. Verse 31. Today we know that the Lord is with us because you have not acted unfaithfully towards the Lord in this matter. Now you have rescued the Israelites from the Lord's hand. So the delegation then go back to report to the Israelites, verse 33. They were glad to hear the report and praised God. And they talked no more about going to war against them to devastate the country where the Reubenites and Gadites lived. Verse 34, and they gave the altar this name, a witness between us that the Lord is God. What an absolutely amazing result from a misunderstanding, a strengthened witness between us that the Lord is God. A congregation rejoicing and praising God because the breach had been completely healed. Now friends, in that simple story, there is a model for us as a church. Because as our church grows, and praise God it will, there are going to be times when there will be misunderstandings. Um, We may find from time to time that we ourselves are misunderstood by other people. But I want to say to you this morning that how we react will determine whether we grow as Christians or shrink. If we take the matter and put it before the Lord under the spotlight of his word and we say, on the grounds of his agreed authority, we want to sort this out properly before God, and we do that in love and in humility, then we will grow. But if we remain resistant and resentful and critical, and we refuse to listen, well then we shouldn't be surprised if we find our Christian lives contracting, shriveling, beginning to die. Of course, we mustn't yield an inch on our biblical convictions, but we do have to learn to deal gently and patiently with one another in love. And above all, to bring one another to a deeper love of the Lord Jesus, rather than being interested in winning an argument in order to boost our own ego. And if as a church we can learn to do that, then our future, both individually 
and as a fellowship, will be richly blessed by Almighty God. Shall we pray? So Lord, we ask that you would write these things on our minds and in our hearts. We thank you for the practical teaching of Scripture, for the examples it gives us as to how your people should behave. And we ask that we may be those who not only accept its authority intellectually, but also live under that authority in detailed obedience that we might be those who speak the truth in love and who aren't afraid to talk together about our differences and who take initiatives to heal breaches and who refuse to be resentful or resistant to your word And we ask this so that our joy may increase and so that as a congregation we might learn to praise you more and more so that in our homes the love of the Lord Jesus might overflow so that whatever you call us to do we may experience your enabling strength and grace. Father, help us to give one another the benefit of the doubt but most of all to seek to win one another to love the Lord Jesus more because we ask it for his name's sake. Amen.